You are listening to the Theological Treasury podcast, where we are committed to diving deep into the history of the Christian faith and exploring the treasury of theological truths from down the centuries to best equip the church today to be able to engage with the church and its theology in every era of its existence to nourish the church with the exploration of theological truth. Join us as we grow together in this journey to explore the much neglected theological treasury. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Theological Treasury podcast. For those of you that don't already know, my name is Ethan and I'm the host of this podcast. And I'm so glad you could join me today with our very special guest, Dr. Matthew Nell, who's a lecturer at London School of Theology in Church History and Historical Theology. Thanks for joining us, Matt. No problem. Thanks so much for coming on. And uh, I've been actually talking a lot about having you on um, over the episodes, and there's been a, uh, quite a few people that have been asking me when you're going to come on. And so we're, it's such a pleasure to have you on today to discuss the importance of church history uh, in relation to uh, the church today. So I wonder, just before we dive right in, if we could just uh, start with, um, uh, I guess, your testimony or kind of where you've been in the church up to this point in time. Uh, okay, uh, I'll try and keep it not to the, the ultra-long version. I grew up in a, a very strong uh, faith family. Uh, my parents uh, were both, uh, have been important people in uh, the church in the UK, um, with particular interest in, in mission and in uh, work overseas. So that, that was my uh, growing up, uh, that was my context. Uh, it began to change when I took a year out before going to university, where I went to a, a small community in Austria. Um, called Schloss Mittersill, which was was Protestant evangelical, but with uh, a lot uh, greater emphasis on creativity um, and on the arts and on areas like Celtic spirituality and elements of Catholic spirituality. And that mm-hmm. began to um, expand my appreciation for the church and for spirituality in ways that I, I hadn't come across mm-hmm. uh, before. So that, that, that's, that's one of the most important um, aspects. And then uh, I did my first degree, which was in, in medieval history. Mm-hmm. Um, and after I finished university, I, I was on the mission field for, for about five years in, in Belarus and in Austria. Uh, and during that time, I started my theological studies. And I had a, a great father in, in my academic career, a, a great guy called Dr. Karl Armading, who uh, is now retired, um, living in Vancouver. He's an Old Testament scholar, great Old Testament scholar. Uh, and from about the age of 18, he kind of began to direct me towards theology and the study of theology and, and the mm-hmm. teaching of mm-hmm. theology. And so once I'd done my, my stuff overseas, I, I did my my PhD combining my history and my theology to do historical theology. I did a, a doctorate on um, the Holy Spirit in 12th century thought. Uh, and for the last 13 years now, uh, I've been teaching the history of the church and the history of, of Christian thought. And the more that I've taught and the more I've studied, and the more I've discussed things, the more I recognize that all parts of the church have strengths and weaknesses, but particularly insights, perspectives, tools that they use as they approach Christian life and faith uh, that I haven't considered before uh, mm-hmm. and that, that enrich and expand my understanding uh, of the faith that I'm, I'm called to, that that convict me, that right. I, I I'm I'm in some way not uh, as not allowing God to be uh, as glorious and majestic uh, as uh, as as He can be if mm-hmm. I choose to learn from the church. The re- the result is that denominationally now 
I, I'm I'm kind of all over the place in terms of <laughs> yeah. straight thinking. I mean, uh, my medieval studies, because there is no Protestant church, were, were in, in Catholic thought. Mm. I spent a lot of time with uh, Orthodox uh, theology in my, my more modern studies. I engage heavily with Pentecostal thought and Protestant thought in all of its different forms. Uh, and there are parts of all of those that I, I love. Um, I'd still characterize myself above all uh, as an evangelical, which is a slightly strange thing to do these days because the word is can be loaded with whatever meaning you choose to to, to bring to it. Mm. For me, it, it, being an evangelical is is heavily methodological. So it's about the authority of scripture. Yeah. Uh, and one, one of the interesting questions I, I, I like to ask students is, because they talk a lot about the authority of scripture, is what does that mean? What does right. it mean for scripture to have authority? Because as I engage with the church in most of its different forms, what I find is that pe- people approach theology, it, it's pro- approach scripture if they if they use scripture a lot, almost imposing what they think scripture says or ought to say or what their church has taught them scripture says. Yeah. Rather than allowing scripture to change what they think and, and, and how they've been taught. And so one of the, my my key mantras to students is to, to hold theology, their theology lightly, hold mm. the authority of Scripture strongly, and and where the two don't match up easily, allow Scripture to be true, right, and allow your theology to to change or to to open up to allow the truth of Scripture. So that's that's what the authority of Scripture means means to me, and that's kind of right. where I I come at. And when I'm looking at, at at all the different parts of the church, that's kind of what I'm looking for in them. Is right. how their understanding of scripture has led them into different positions. But that was a that's the short answer. It wasn't <laughs> particularly short. No, of course, no, of course. Thank, I really, really appreciate that as well. And I wonder if you could briefly touch on because I know a lot of um, people are aware of uh, the man himself, John Stott. And at one point, you were, if I'm not mistaken, were trained under him at some point during not your... not formally trained under him. No, no, I I, I had I had informal uh, conversations with John quite long ones, but only right. on a couple of occasions. Sure. But um, he happened to be visiting the, the castle where I was working in Austria. Um, and through sheer luck, uh, on two separate occasions, I was basically left alone with John for a fairly considerable length of time. One of them was two and a half, three hours, just me and John in the back of a car um, chatting <laughs> uh, about stuff. Um, so that, that, was, that was an incredible experience uh, for me because of John's authenticity right. in the faith. That's what shines through to me. I mean, obviously, he's a wonderful writer and speaker and various other things. But the more I've I've investigated and, and having related a little bit to, to John, sure. um, he's someone who did commit himself to, to God in, in prayer and in, in service and in in such wisdom given the turbulent times that he was working in, you know, mm-hmm. from the 50s through to the early 2000s. You think about the change in the nature of the church, the nature of evangelicalism, the nature of society through those decades. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't agree with everything that John's ever written or, or taught by any means. But I, I, I admire him massively as a, as, a, as a man, of as an authentic man within his understanding and experience of God. Absolutely. And so 
that kind of will kind of work into what today's episode is about, about the importance of church history today. And with John Stott certainly being a, a very modern figure, a very influential modern evangelical figure. So I guess I want to start off just by asking you why the interest in historical theology and church history specifically? Obviously, I know from uh, conversations back and forth with you that you also love your spiritual theology and you also do like your practical theology. But why choose to go into lecturing in specifically church history, historical theology in that realm? Uh, mostly, it goes back to my my life story. I, I was I was a historian first um, mm-hmm. before I was a theologian. I think I think I was a, a solid historian, if not spectacular historian. But it's it's something that that always uh, interested me. I, I I love stories. I think probably yeah. it's the story part rather than the history part that's that's the most important thing for me. Uh, and so having having done a history degree and and working my way in in through theology, I think it was the, it was the natural route. It helped that um, my dad was a uh, a student at, at London School of Theology ooh, a long time ago, oh, wow. 40, forty years ago now, uh, and so he had some some contacts at college, and I used to to come in occasionally with him, uh, and through him I got to know Tony Lane, uh, mm-hmm. who is our professor of historical theology, one of the great global uh, historical uh, theologians, and I got to have some chats with Tony, and uh, I. I was fairly clear fairly early on that I would love love to work uh, under Tony, but both because of his, the rigor of his his scholarship and the excellence of his scholarship, uh, but also because if I have well I have many weaknesses, but one of my weaknesses <laughs> would be a tendency to be a bit sloppy, um, right. and I was sure that Tony wasn't going to allow me to do that. He was going to to ask me the difficult questions and right. and require me. To, to to meet the standards that I should be meeting, uh, and so so when you get the chance to work with Tony Lane uh, as a as somebody interested in history and historical theology, it's it's, it's an honour to to be around. No, absolutely, and you know I've obviously been in conversation a lot with Tony Lane um, as well, being someone who came to LSC as a Calvinist and no longer is so. And with uh, Tony Lane being a a foremost Calvin scholar, I think it's just such a blessing to be able to come to places like LSE with people like you and Tony who are able to pour into students in not just uh, an academic way, but also uh, a practical way in actually showing us how to kind of live the Christian life. And so I'm sure everyone really appreciates that. But that's that we appreciate you kind of uh, giving us insight into uh, why history has obviously benefited you and why you chose to go into this into this profession of lecturing in historical theology and church history. And so on that note, I know this is you could talk hours and hours about this, but who would you say is your favorite theologian throughout the last 2000 years? I know 2000 years, a long time, but the last 2000 years of the faith or, or your favorite, obviously you're a medieval scholar. So your favorite uh, point in his, in the history of the church that you think as well could benefit the church today. I think the timing thing is, uh, is probably more difficult um, to answer because in every, every time I look at the church, there are, there are lessons there to, to learn and I just love exploring all of them I think I think I have for the moment come down to my old friend Irenaeus as my my favorite theologian mm. uh, in the history of the church purely because of the task that was before him and mm-hmm. the context in which he worked Irenaeus was working in the late second century mm-hmm. um, and scripture was still not finally decided uh, upon uh, but by this stage and certainly the oral tradition was was very strong uh, as, as an authority and uh, you don't have schools of theology not only in a kind of a building sense but even 
kind of collections. The, 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 the Christian church was noted at that point in history for being an unthinking entity. So you have the, the Greek philosophy Celsus, who just makes fun of the, the church for its intellectual ignorance as a key characteristic. So Irenaeus doesn't have a community of thinkers, a big community of serious thinkers around him uh, as a resource. He's now been separated by a few generations from the apostles. And so he, he, he is working in a very lonely context. He, he grows up in, in the east of the Roman Empire. He ends up in Gaul in, in France, finally. And therefore, he's working in a very foreign cultural context. Mm. Um, he, we believe ultimately he, he's martyred for his uh, faith. But he's also faced beyond the persecution with the whole of the Gnostic yeah. Uh, heresy in all of its strands and and Gnosticism is not appreciated well by the church uh, mm. today and um, there are two two reasons we know that one, one is it's presented in quite simplistic terms when it's ever referenced whereas when you study it and, and you hear Irenaeus talking about it you realize that it's immensely complex immensely uh, detailed it's it's coherent within itself um, it is it is deep in its thought in its sources and in its its products and it's a real challenge for a church which is still trying to work out what it believes about Christ and God and spirit and church and all of these kinds of things. And and in a single work, pretty much, is okay, it's divided into five books, but it's against heresies. Irenaeus pretty well deconstructs Gnosticism for the Christian. There really isn't much of a need after Irenaeus for the church to have another voice on Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. because it's pretty well all contained within Irenaeus's uh, yeah. thought. There are other significant things about Gnosticism, of course there are. But it, it's a majestic work given that, that context. And, and one of the tragedies for me today is, is quite how Gnostic the church can be in its theology and its, its spirituality mm-hmm. um, and how much of, of Irenaeus's thought has, has been forgotten to our peril. Right. But I guess we'll get on to that. No, yeah, I, I think because I was reading, so I've been reading recently a, a, a book that I was telling you about a while back about that kind of goes with the Creed councils and controversies and the new Eusebius as doctrine practice in the early church by uh, an ecclesiastical scholar, a uh, historical ecclesiastical scholar's name that has left my mind. And he was talking about um, Irenaeus in, in relation to Gnosticism, about how Gnosticism was kind of is much more of a modern term given to kind of group up these heresies within each other because then later on in other church fathers you've got other church fathers using the same word um from which gnostic comes gnosis gnosis meaning knowledge um in good theological ways so i think what you what you say about the idea of as as well irenaeus's thought being lost i guess could you would you say then there is somewhat of a necessity in not necessarily because you know i don't think everybody has to be a scholar because the large, the large majority of people we talk to are uh, people sitting in the pews. So, would you say then there is a necessity to be able to reclaim the thought of the historic church? Uh, well, if we don't have the faith of the historic church, we haven't got the Christian faith, right? Uh, <laughs> because it's you know it's well, there's, there's so many ways I could go uh, with <laughs> that. that. Um, I mean, Christianity is about we are saved by fa- by grace through faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the faith that the church has learned from Christ and from the Spirit through the apostles and through the church that took on that faith. It's that which saves us rather than 
the ability to read the Bible and decide what we think the Bible means and right. uh, this kind of uh, thing. And I think that's one of the, one of the, the, the dangers that the church has um, these days is we pick up this Bible, generally speaking, in English rather than in the, in the original languages. Yeah. And, and we condition it using all sorts of, of modern assumptions and preconceptions and values and beliefs. Uh, and we program it into something which is acceptable to ourselves and to our, our societies and to our churches. Mm-hmm rather than seeking to submit to, to, to the faith. And we have a very particular and a very strange context these days, and, and, and one which is very foreign to, to the church, that, the church of the New Testament times and the church at various other points in its history. Um, our values are not the values of those societies. Our ways of thinking are very different. And there's parts of the church that seem to assume that because we are later, we are better, and almost seek to correct the Bible and the Bible's ways of thinking about things rather than submitting to those things. I'm not sure I'm answering your question at all at this point. No, no. Because no, I, I, I can't no, remember I'm... what your question was at this point. I mean, I, I don't <laughs> generally listen to your questions. But anyway, um, I, I think um, uh, it's about the faith of the church, isn't it? The importance for today, or do you think there's a yeah. necessity in reclaiming its thought for today? I, absolutely. The fundamental nature of, of Christian life for me within this world is, is one of humility. Uh, so I talk about these three humilities, humility before God, which we need to work on instead of telling God what to do in our prayers, allow God to tell us what to do in, in, in prayers and to, to revision us mm. uh, to see the world and our lives and others lives through his eyes. Uh, humility before scripture, which we've already talked about in terms of not imposing our, our doctrines on scripture, but allowing scripture to form, reform, challenge and convict us. And mm. then humility before the church at each of its points to say that others have sought God and have been spoken to by God through scripture, by the spirit, in the church, through creation, in all these different ways. And they, they, they can teach me because actually so much of my Christian life disadvantages me in, in many ways from, from God speaking to me in a convicting manner. Yeah. Because it's all too easy for me to be competent in my doctrines, in my life, with methods and, and processes and, and advantages that for, for God to, to speak to me is seems, and of course is pure heresy, seems less necessary because I can basically do life and church and spirituality and prayer right. because I've got a how-to guide for anything. Mm. I've got a thousand how-to guides and I can pick one which seems to work for me and, and it's fine. Whereas the church in its history has, generally speaking, been in a in a less advantageous position even during christendom when it had secular power its learning was less and therefore it was called to a more faith oriented posture right because it couldn't do a lot of things for itself um and so what the what the church almost always convicts me about is the nature of my faith and whether i am as as centered in a a posture of faith Mm -hmm as I should be. And I, I find myself always, almost always saying, no, I, my faith is, is not as deep as it should be. These people have greater faith right. than I do. I may have more knowledge, more facts than them, more systems of understanding, um, more tools that I can work with. But has that led me to a, a greater posture of faith before my God? Mm. Not always. Right. And it should do. No, absolutely. And I think 
I've always kind of had, even before coming to LSE, I've always had a bit of a knack for looking at the church in history. And it's only really since I started coming to LSE that I kind of learned how to not just necessarily properly read and church history and understand church history, but also the, the significance of church history in my life, even before I, I'd gained an interest in that. And so and I, it had come to my attention as well, really, really quite early on in, in first year that I kind of I'd used and abused church history for my own liking. You know, where where one father, when one church father has said something that agrees with me, I was like, look, the entire church agrees with me. And then where everybody else disagrees with me, it's like, oh, no, we don't we don't worry about them. So I wonder if you could kind of from your experience and kind of in your perception, maybe talk about one or two of the church's biggest strengths or weaknesses uh, when it comes to uh, an understanding and use of church history and historical theology, uh, especially in the context of trying to understand their faith and using, for example, scripture to push a certain doctrine, etc. Uh, sadly, in in my particularly my Protestant context, mm. I need to think about my Catholic and Orthodox because I think I'm probably going to find some issues there. Uh, it's difficult to find major strengths for for two two major reasons. And this is not, of course, this is a generalization. This is not applicable to all churches or to all individuals. The, the first issue is the one that you, you began to highlight there, which is that most people are not aware of the traditions that have formed them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the things that students who come and, and study theology normally have opened up to them. Oh, oh hang on a sec. That thing which I do or think uh, is, is part of a tradition. Mm. rather than what all Christians do or even what the Bible encourages us right. to, to do. So people don't have uh, sufficient knowledge of themselves and, and why they believe what they believe, uh, why they do what they do. Mm. Um, and you see this. I mean, the, 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 perhaps the worst context for this is is seeing a Christian who does or thinks something different and the snap to judging them because they right. don't think what I think or do what I do. Yeah. And not recognizing, well, hang on a sec, maybe I'm at fault. It's that Romans 14 of the stronger and the weaker brother. Right. Um, where Paul says, you know, you need to bear with your weaker brothers. Every time I hear that passage preached on, it seems that it's the stronger brother who's preaching to me. And I seem to be the weaker brother in, in every aspect because I right. never do or think what they think. But right. anyway, um, so I think that's that's one of the things is people need to recognize that whoever we are, our Christian faith and and life is to some degree contained within what i call generally call a, bu- a bubble that's formed around us mm-hmm. if we've only been to one denomination of church if we've only been to one church growing up that bubble is going to be fairly small yeah uh, if we've been to multiple churches if we've moved cross-culturally uh, if we've engaged with other languages those bubbles will be be larger because mm-hmm. we'll have had other experiences, we'll have been exposed to other values and other other ways of thinking and other spiritualities and all these other other things. And we should have g- given them some consideration and may well have experienced them and, and been enriched by them. But but still, it's going to be contained within those experiences that, that we've had. And we need to understand that. We need to be, to, to, to be better, more self-reflective in terms of recognizing that actually most of what we say and do are informed by a tradition of a kind, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's a very strong tradition or a very recent, very weak tradition. And I think one of the, the applications with this for me, which I, I, I try to, to encourage students towards, is is the language that we use. And so much of the language that we use is our traditions 
language and, and, and particularly about God rather than language that the Bible uses about God. I always prefer to use what language that the Bible uses about God rather than words that tradition uses about God. Yeah. Because as soon as we're using, and that's generally theological words about God, even if it's low theological words, popular theological words about God, we're actually mm. making the whole exercise harder for ourselves mm-hmm. because we're putting ourselves at a distance from, from Scripture. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Theological Treasury podcast so far. Be sure to take a break, get a snack or a drink and get comfortable ready for the second part of this episode of the Theological Treasury podcast. So the first first weakness, major weakness is, is that we're not aware of ourselves. The second major weakness is we're simply not aware of, of the tradition of the church. We haven't studied the church uh, and if we have studied it, we've studied it in a very popular, simplistic, kind of unhelpful form. So we, we're simply not aware. I mean, the, the great thinkers of the church, I mean, I have this course called Key Christian Thinkers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I were to call up my spreadsheet uh, about who uh, we look at in, in that, I would suspect that within that document, I've got it in front of me already. You see how, how well <laughs> I am? There are about 70 names, not quite, uh, that we that I did in the last one. I would expect that most Christians might have 10 or 15 of those names that they've heard of out of the nearly 70. And of the 10 of the 15 that they've actually heard of, they may have actually done some kind of study of a few of them. And they may have actually read a whole book by one or two of them. But that's, that's, that's sad when there's so much richness, there's so much experience. These are people who have lived, often who have died for their faith right. who have who have formed the theology which we now bandy around in in simplistic songs and this kind of stuff yeah. who have stood up for the faith against dangerous teachings that are not easy to understand why they are dangerous mm. um who have had the most wonderful insights into prayer life into the nature of christian worship into service they are heroes of the faith and, you know Bible encourages us to look at the heroes of the faith. You've got Hebrews 11, and mm-hmm. we're not limited to the heroes of the faith as found in Scripture. But great heroes of the faith in Scripture. Always love going into Scripture and finding more about it. But we've, we've got these resources, and we just ignore them. And, and that's, that's just very sad, really. I, mean, I think where one of the uh, times when I was kind of challenged about this was uh, around the whole theme of the Reformation, which was something I, I always swore I would never write a book on because I'm a medievalist. And Reformation studies is a nightmare of a, a place to go into. But I was challenged uh, by Spring Harvest, or I was asked by Spring Harvest to do a, a series of seminars on the Reformation. And um, it happened to be at the same time that I was writing uh, a book on sin, grace and free will. In the period of the Reformation, I was actually reading some of the Reformers' writings mm-hmm. uh, as preparation for that book. And I, as I was reading the Reformers' writings in that context and thinking about talking about the the reformation to a spring harvest audience i suddenly began to realize that the reformation and the reformation writers weren't who i'd thought they were and didn't say what i thought they'd said right because my approach to the reformation because i hadn't done much formal study of it it's not part of my it wasn't part of my teaching it wasn't part of my research at postgraduate level at all Mm. so i was i was confronted by doing serious study into it right at the primary source level as well as going through some some serious thinkers about them. And I, I suddenly realized that what I had received 
in my basic studies and in in my by popular thought uh, through church was just su- at such a distance from what these men and women generally men at that point in time were were thinking what they were doing who they were writing for who they were writing against and I began to look at you know I, I did the, the series of seminars but a key part of that was saying well within this area of reformation thought mm. what would the reformers say to my church traditions today mm. and I I found my, myself and my church contexts uh, which are, are varied in terms of the church that I work with almost universally convicted by the reformers going you're yeah. supposed to be representing me right what are you doing <laughs> uh you know they they seem to be calling me to to be to need the kinds of reformations that they were calling for them we seem to have fallen back into not necessarily catholic uh errors of the time but scholastic errors of the er, errors of the time philosophical errors of the time uh, spiritual errors of the time mm-hmm. that they were writing against and saying and you know the reformers were calling us back to an authority of scripture back to the faith of the historic church mm. away from the corruptions that society and culture and philosophy had brought into the church right. and these days you look at what we're doing in our churches and a lot of it is culturally infected it's it's affected by our language it's affected by the philosophy of our times mm. and, and where is the authority of scripture where is the 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 faith of the historic church it's getting lost We've developed a, a model of Christianity theologically and in our lifestyles that is in accordance with kind of what we want it to be. Right. And, and I find very rarely, and I go to a lot of different churches uh, as part of my of my work, and very rarely in those churches do I find people being challenged in their thinking and their spirituality. Mm-hmm. Almost always in their prayers, in their songs, in their sermons, they are being confirmed in what they think and what and how they're living and the the fact is that the church the church is not the radical church that it should be in its Mm. sacrifice of itself in its love of god in its love of neighbor i did another series for spring harvest on the church under the lordship of the spirit yeah it was very convicting Mm. to ask the question what does the lordship of the spirit look like in my life and in the church's life And, and are we anywhere near that and i don't see much lordship of the spirit in our churches and i see in other churches i i see them they're not perfect by any means but i i see i'm challenged by what it means for them so would you say then there is an extent to which from the historic faith of the church going down the centuries to a more modernized sort of I'm going to use the word evangelical, even though I largely think it's lost its meaning. And I don't I think a lot of people use it as somewhat of an incantation to repeat and something cool to be labeled as. Um, And I think it's kind of lost its historic meaning going back to people like Wesley. But kind of I think would you say it's a fair judgment to say that the church has kind of gone downward a bit down a bit of a downward spiral in in so far as its relation back our finding its identity, not just in what scripture does say, but in also what the church in the way in which the church has defended what scripture says about the church yeah i think that that's generally that's generally true again not not um ubiquitously so but i mm. i think i think the, one of the great problems that the church has had in the last 70 years in particular is the problem that society changed incredibly ra- radically and incredibly rapidly 
in a way that it hadn't quite to that. I mean, you have old events for the Roman Empire and Reformation and various other things. But if you look at the nature of society, there were certain values that, that were relatively constant, if slightly shifting, respect for elderly, some part of, of religion in society, family, community. was. You, you look what happened after the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um, not only kind of sex, drugs, rock and roll, but postmodernism and all the gender stuff that's going on, multiculturalism, pluralism coming through, AI and computer technologies, arms races. It, it was an incredible shift. And a lot of the assumptions of society, a lot of values of the society were blown up. And the church even in all of its different forms in denominations and realizations, had had some consistency in terms of its teachings. And it suddenly found itself speaking a language and calling for a lifestyle that was just so different from the society. You had this chasm, which was probably partly present before in many different ways, but it was suddenly revealed in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and in different ways onwards through the 80s, 90s, noughties. Uh, and continues to be to be revealed. But the, the church kind of began to, to ask itself, well, church is fine for those who are in the church, who are born into the church and who grow up in the church. It kind of works for those people. Mm. But increasingly, there is just this gap between us and those who are outside the church. Mm-hmm. We're not able to relate to them. Our, the words we use about faith don't mean anything to these people. We, we know because they, they have no Bible knowledge, they have no scripture knowledge. So our jargon becomes un, unimportant. Our lifestyles just don't make sense to people outside the church. Uh, our values don't communicate across because we may be using the same words, but they don't have the same meaning anymore. Uh, mm. And so out of that, you have this this great movement of the church to say, we need to reach out to society. We need to reach out to the lost. We need to be relevant to them, or at least we need to be able to relate to them. Uh, And so we need to use different language. We need to have a degree of attractiveness. Jesus, he attracted the crowds to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the church needs to attract people Mm -hmm. towards it. So maybe we need to to use the tools of the day in order to, to bring people in. And that's good and right and proper. But what has taken over our churches is this attractive relatable relevance and it's bled down through through children's works over generations and that's then formed generations of adults in the church who've grown up through that so that bible knowledge of christians bible reading of christians is not happening you've also got the 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 problem of discipleship Mm. that churches face Mm. because churches don't have much space for discipleship most churches, you know, most people coming to church will give you a Sunday morning to disciple them and maybe a Wednesday evening or Tuesday evening to mm-hmm. do a bit of a Bible study. Thing. Mm-hmm. That's the, all the time that you get. And if churches are ministering to people who have low Bible knowledge, and particularly if they're on a Sunday morning, bearing in mind that there may well be non-Christians present, what you have to do in your teaching on a Sunday morning is something which is shallow in its, in its theology, uh, shallow in its discipleship. And often the, the midweek studies become, I always say they're, they're kind of GCSE English literature exercises <laughs> where you have your little passage and you have your questions and you find the answers to the questions in the passage and then you have your, 
tea and coffee and you have your chat and a bit of a mm. prayer and you're done. But you know, generally speaking, most church house groups are not led by people who are trained in the faith. They're right. they're discussion. They're they're people who love to read the word and want to do a bit of reading of the word, mm. discussing the word. But often there aren't anybody there who've done kind of study of, of the word. Right. Uh, and so it's it's great. It's fellowship. It's community. It's it's reading scripture, which is a great thing. But to what extent is it discipleship? Well, often not a great thing. And, and you know, historically, again, going back pre World War Two, when people were taught the Bible in Sunday school, it wasn't necessarily as pleasant a Sunday school as we have today. Right. But people, you know, they did their memory verses. That whole great Sunday school tradition. Uh, and then on a Sunday morning. There, there was a, a big thing about getting the word preached and allowing the word an authority. And again, another factor in that is that before World War II, most people who were going into the ministry would have done some biblical languages. Right. So they, they, you know, and without computers and internet and other distractions, they spend a lot of time reading commentaries, mm. reading, reading the word. And, and all of that has bled out of the church to, to some degree. So that most churches... There's just no place, really, mm. for discipleship unless individuals in the church or groups within the church really want to pursue it. Right. But there, there just isn't the space or the time or the training in the church to allow this. And so we have great strengths in the church today in, in terms of being able to, to meet and talk to society. But unfortunately, we're not often able to tell the society in depth. We're not able to give them deep answers to questions. Right. Because we just don't have that kind of, of knowledge. No. no, I think as well. I think it's really interesting you say that largely because I, in my reading um, of the early church, I read a lot about kind of how the early church largely started off as house churches. And kind of as the early church progressed, so like pre-Irenaeus, it was very much sort of a small house church was governed by, I guess you could call uh, a like a, a council of elders or deacons or whatnot. And then as kind of Irenaeus and Hippolytus had started writing against the heresies of the time and Hippolytus was writing against someone like uh, Callistus, who was like a bishop of Rome at the time and Irenaeus against the Gnostics, there was very much this push towards this sort of this one uh, this one person, uh, th this one person government within these little house churches. But what's really interesting about that is the fact that even though it kind of shifted from kind of this group leadership to this one person leadership and then groups under that, there was still the the intentionality within the discipleship. And I think one of the biggest weaknesses of the church today, and I think I'm going to point out the American church largely because I, I don't really see this a lot with the English church, not too much, uh, maybe the Soul Survivor festivals, but um. But in, in American churches are huge. They are. They are massive. They're like, I remember, like, they, like, I remember you talking about like any any number bigger than 30 is like a conference. You know, these churches have hundreds upon hundreds, sometimes thousands upon thousands of people. And it just becomes that kind of a spirituality that says, OK, I go to church on a Sunday. I sing. I worship. I have church done to me rather than participate in church. And then I leave. And I think one of the great things that the early church has done specifically, but also throughout the history of the church is its focus on discipleship and actually being in in the Greek koinonia in fellowship with one another. So but I think American churches often as well, those mega churches, Americans are, have a have a great strength in understanding uh, the nature of institutions uh, yeah. and, and putting in place systems and processes. Mm -hmm. And so most of those mega churches actually, and, and they're, they're very good at commitment. Right. Uh, uh, Americans, generally speaking. 
Uh, and mm. so often what you get is that people will go to a, a mega church on a Sunday morning, but they'll also go to not only a house group, but a, a choir, various other things. And there are multiple layers that a large, a very large number of people will be involved in. And they'll often have very big team, pastoral teams who will be going and visiting people and checking up on people. Mm. They're very relational. So actually, it's possible to get lost. But it strikes me that a lot of those churches actually probably do have many many layers where there is quite a lot of discipleship available mm -hmm. uh, to people the the issue often it, it i mean depends on on the, the state and the context of the churches the, the the problem particularly in some some of the those churches can be well do they end up with their whole lives being consumed by the church so that right. they end up losing that relevance relatable stuff or that outside outside vision so i, I i'm not sure sure that yeah ha having a celebration on a sunday morning is not necessarily a bad thing so long as there are other things happening elsewhere but balance is you know there's no perfect church no uh, absolutely um, not and i think but I, yeah. I i think my point was that there has to be the church has to find places for discipleship it, it's got to require actually its leaders to be discipled mm. uh, one of the things that the church needs to do is to give it its leaders space for discipleship and there, there, are, there are two different forms of problem I see there. In, in some churches, Anglican, Catholic, Orthodox, le slightly less so, it's one area where Catholics and Orthodox are, are better than, than Anglicans. But Anglicans aren't bad, and Baptists aren't bad at this uh, as well. A, they require a good level of training for people to be mm -hmm. the leaders of the church. But B, also, uh, but then they, they do need, I think, to give their leaders more time for study. And that depends somewhat on the individual churches. But I, I mean, I was a member of Baptist churches for a, for a quite a long time. And I know a lot of Baptist pastors, some of them former students. And, and the demands on their time are massive. I mean, these men and women are, are working 60, 80 hour weeks because mm. they have to be at every, you know, and that we need to care for our leaders yeah. much better. And if they're going to be our senior teachers, we need to give them space to to learn I mean, the number of times i've been in churches and people have very clearly put the sermon together over a couple of hours on a saturday morning because they haven't had any other time to do it so mm. so i think that's the thing but then in a lot of other churches we need to to make sure that our our leaders have got time to be trained i mean in of non um we've got people who are who are leading churches who've got no real training in in the faith except a little bit of kind of mentoring discipleship from from an individual and so their understanding of of the the church and the faith and of scripture is going to be less than it should be and again it's it's it's, it's our job as churches to give them the space and if necessary to give them the the, the resources financially to get themselves well trained. i mean do we care about this or not i mean if our faith is the core of who we are we should want those who are leading us in it to be trained as well as they can be trained and we should give them the space the time the energy the resources to do that and that goes back to your point on, on community where the early church did this you know they they honored the leaders who were put over them and when they didn't honor them there would be a letter written not necessarily a new testament letter but the early church letters are often saying to churches what are you doing to your leaders where's the honor to these people who are your parents in the faith and where is where is the respect that is due to people who are 
teaching you, who are leading you. And our, our culture of cynicism and criticism is, um, is one which, generally speaking, uh, leads us to, to not honouring our, our, our leaders as we should. And I, I think that's a, that's a massive issue that the church needs to face up to uh, and needs to face up to fairly soon. Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. And I want to just before we close off, if there's anything, one one piece of whether that be any of your wisdom or, or advice you could give to a listener today in anything to do with the faith, if there's something you could just kind of say to them, what would that be? The first thing I would say is treasure your Bibles. It is an immense privilege to us to have the living, breathing word of God accessible to us. And if scripture becomes dull or dead or cold or, or anything else, then we need to, to, to consider again what we have uh, available to us to read it. It's about how we approach it. If it is precious to us, then I, I think that. The, the other thing which, in terms of our, our conversation today, is seek the biggest, the most majestic God that, that scripture reveals, scripture and the Son and the Spirit and creation reveals to us do not allow god to become contained in your thinking in your experience you know so so listen find others to listen to find find uh, churches seek out some of our fathers in in and mothers in the faith yeah uh, and if you're not quite sure where to go find somebody who can talk, email me at college um <laughs> you can find my email address on lst or, or or get Ethan to do do something, but yeah. have have the the richness of the church's experience of God opened up more to you, and it will not it will challenge you, it'll convict you, occasionally it will encourage you, but mostly it'll give you right kicking to say your God's too small, mm. uh, your faith is too small. Mm-hmm. It, it's bigger than that. It's better than that. It's harder than that. But it is for God's glory that we're doing all of this and. That yeah. seems to, to require a, a cost. No, absolutely. And I wonder if um, you could kind of let us know where we can find your works. I know you've written a, a couple of books. So I wonder what books you've written and where we can find them. Yeah, so I've written a, a few things now. I've written a couple of popular works, one called Defenders of the Faith, which looks at different types of a, a, attack that the church has faced in its history and, and how uh, the church sought to respond to that. Irenaeus pops up is a, with a good chapter in the, in that. It's, a, it's an interesting little spirituality book. The, uh, the other straight popular work I've done so far is a book called Rediscovering the Reformation, which is the one that I referenced earlier, which for me, as I was write, researching and writing it, blew up what the Reformation is and what we could be as a church if we were to learn some of those lessons. And then there's a book upcoming, I hope, on the Ascension of Christ, which is kind of half popular half not quite, not academic so much it, it it will probably be the most significant book that i ever write i think mm. uh, i'm co-writing it with a former student a guy called rich pound he's a brilliant uh, thinker and communicator and um and so that that hopefully will be coming out in the next few months probably called the absent jesus or the absence of jesus something like that uh and then uh, on the more academic side i've written two volumes so far of my set on sin grace and free will looking at how the church throughout history has, has approached these concepts volume three is going to come out at some point um <laughs> it's a it's been a chat very great challenge to, to well all three uh, volumes have been a challenge but volume three has been a particular challenge uh and then i've got a book on the the holy spirit 
from Anselm to Lombard. So that's that's very much a niche book for those who love medieval theology. And that was your so, doctoral thesis, right? That's kind of my doctoral thesis. Yeah, not not very adapted. And um, that that's not going to make me much money in terms of sales. That one, I'm reckoning. <laughs> right, Matt, I'm not, thank you so I'm not much. retiring on that one. No. <laughs> Matt, thank you so much for joining us on the Theological Treasury podcast. We really appreciate your presence and your wisdom uh, being shown on this podcast. And guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And we hope to see you guys on the next episode. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Theological Treasury Podcast. I sincerely hope that you've enjoyed this episode and pray that it challenges you to think about where you are and where you should be with regards to theology in your walk with God. It certainly makes me think every single day. Now feel free to connect with me on Instagram at mastermind and the A is an X, so it's M-X-S-T-E-R-M-I-N-D and share your feedback and what you'd like to hear from this podcast. Please share this around so that others may benefit from this podcast. I hope and pray that you're all doing well in this season. Go with God, friends.